0: Phil for that warm welcome. It's great to be with you here. Um, It was actually 1996. It was our first Sunday in Escondido. We went to to New Life and we met you guys and actually we had you back for lunch that Sunday. So uh, we go back, yes, a long way and uh, just delightful to see what the Lord is doing here and encouraging Uh, If you have your Bibles, please open them or take the pew Bibles and turn uh, to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 4, which is the psalm we're going to read today. The superscription tells us to the choir master with stringed instruments that this is a psalm of David, as are uh, all pretty much of the psalms in the opening section of the Psalter. Answer me when I call. in safety." Thus, far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before You as uh, weak and needy people uh, who have many concerns on our hearts, even today. Some of those concerns new, some of them have been with us day after day for a long time. And You invite us to come and bring these concerns before You, but You also speak to us through Your Word through the experiences of other believers, through their conversations with You. Lord, we pray that today You would show us more about our own hearts, show us more about our need of the gospel, and show us Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old saying that goes like this, if you can keep your head when all around you are losing theirs, you probably don't know what's going on. Uh, Why is it that some people are able to hold themselves together in the midst of deep tragedy and trials, while other people fall apart under much lesser strains? Well, that's the theme that David started to look at in the previous psalm, in Psalm 3. There, David showed us that true peace comes not from living in denial and pretending that everything is fine, but by looking to the Lord as your shield, and as your glory. And that theme of calm endurance under trials continues in Psalm 4, which in many ways is a companion psalm to, uh, to the psalm before it. The psalms are connected by the theme of dealing with trials and by shared motifs such as looking for where glory may be found, Psalm 3.3 and 4.2, as well as the theme of lying down and sleeping in peace. Psalm 3, 5 and verse 8 of Psalm 4. Well, in this psalm, in Psalm 4, King David is carrying out two conversations at the same time, a conversation with God and a conversation with His people, especially the leaders of His people. And the conversation between David and God is in verse 1 and verses 6 through 8, bracketing David's conversation with the people in verses two through five. And so you could summarize the psalm by saying that uh, uh, the king's confident petition to God surrounds his calm counsel to his people. The king's confident petition to God surrounds his calm counsel to his people. Or to put it another way, David is able to keep his head while those around him are losing theirs, not because he doesn't know what's going on, but precisely because he does know what's going on. David sees the heavenly truth that we so often miss, and he wants us to see it too so that we likewise can learn how to keep our heads in the midst of trials. Now, the trial that David is experiencing in this psalm is quite different from the trial in Psalm 3. In Psalm 3, David was under attack from his enemies. He was pursued by his own rebellious son, Absalom. In Psalm 4, the danger is more diffuse, even if every bit is real. This is one of the few lament psalms that doesn't explicitly mention the psalmist's enemies. It seems likely that there was a famine in the land. The seasonal rains had failed to come, and in consequence, the harvest was poor. That's why there's a reference to grain and wine. In verse 7, the people were looking poverty, malnutrition, even death straight in the eye. In such a situation, it wasn't simply a matter of raging inflation or fewer choices in the supermarket because of problems with the supply chain. There was literally nothing to eat. Things seemed desperate for Israel. And that situation reflected badly on the king whose job it was to provide for the people. This was a common understanding in the ancient Near East. If the gods favored the king, they would answer his prayers, and they would send rain, and there would be an abundant harvest. But in this situation, no rain had been forthcoming, as the king's prayers went unanswered. The system wasn't working the way the leaders of Israel thought it ought to work. Now, modern hearers may not be familiar with the imminent threat of famine, but I think the underlying situation is all too common. You've prayed, you ask God desperately for help, but the disaster that you prayed about seems to be inexorably hastening on in spite of all of your prayers. Now in that situation of trial plus unanswered prayer, I think there are three main temptations that people face. And in this psalm, David lays out those three temptations and reminds his hearers and us of the answers to them. First, David's glory as king was his privilege to approach God in prayer as God's son and have his prayers answered. That's recorded in 2 Samuel 7. But this time he had prayed to God and there was no response, and it wasn't just David whose glory was being turned to shame, it was Israel's God, the Lord. He was the one who'd promised to be with David and his line, and he was being put to shame and dishonored. Literally, verse 2 says, "'How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie?' That is, the people were in danger of abandoning their true king in favor of worthless idols and pursuing lies, vanity, false gods in place of the true God of Israel, all because their prayers were not being answered. Things were going from bad to worse in spite of all of their calling on the Lord, and so they began to think that there must either be something wrong with their prayers or something wrong with their God. Now, of course, that thesis seems initially plausible, and so you hear the same logic applied in the contemporary world as well. People may say to you, well, you know, the reason why you're sick is because you don't have enough faith. In other words, your prayers aren't being answered because there's something wrong with you. Or you ask somebody, why don't you believe in God? And they'll say to you, well, I was in this situation, and I prayed to God, and God didn't answer my prayers. So, that's why I don't believe in God. God either isn't good enough or He isn't powerful enough to answer this person's prayers. And the remedy for this first temptation is found there in verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart the Godly for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. You see, for David, the assurance that his prayers would be heard came from his knowledge of who he was in relationship to God. David knew God had chosen him. God had set him apart, as he had declared in Psalm 2, and therefore he knew for sure that God would hear his prayers, even if all the evidence around him seemed to be to the contrary the Hebrew word that's translated godly here, chasid, simply means a person who's seeking to live honorably in covenant with God. And here that word godly is in the singular. David is speaking of himself as the godly one. He knew that he was looking to God in faith, just as he had been called to do, and that God's covenant promises to him could not fail. God must ultimately vindicate Him if God was going to be true to His promises. Well, you see, we as believers living after the time of Jesus have much more cause to be sure that God has chosen us and set us apart than even David did as anointed king and son of God. Because we have the promise of Jesus, all whom the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6.37, we who believe in the name of Christ, the true Hasid, the true godly one, are called sons and daughters of God, John 1.12. Remember Paul's triumphant words in Romans 8.30, those whom He predestined He also called, and those He called He also justified, and those He justified He also glorified. In other words, those whom God has chosen and called are those who come to Jesus, and those who come to Jesus in faith, believing on His name, can never be driven away because He holds us in His powerful hands. See, this is one of the great implications, practically, of the doctrine of election that just as God chose David and His children and would not let them go, so He has chosen Christ and all of Christ's spiritual children, and He will never let us go. See, if you're looking to Jesus this morning and trusting in Him for your salvation, you can know for sure that God has chosen you. And if you're one of those that God has chosen, that God has set apart for Himself and adopted as His son or His daughter, you can know for sure that God hears your prayers and He will never abandon you in your moment of need. You see, David's counselors had their argument the wrong way around. They started with their external circumstances and argued back to inward realities. You're in a mess therefore God won't or can't take care of you. And I get that because I know how often my own heart argues that way in the midst of difficulties. Yeah, you know, when you push the start button on your washing machine and you hear a nasty grinding sound, my immediate thought is, God, don't you care? Why now, with all these other extra expenses piling up, If you really love me, God, this would not be happening to me. You would deliver me from this situation. You would instantly heal my washing machine. Do I need to anoint it with oil? Is there something I can do? Nothing happens. But you see, the answer of faith is to turn the equation around. You see, faith says, I know for sure that God is my Father, that He has set me apart for Himself because I'm trusting in Christ. And therefore, I know that God hears my prayers. Therefore, this illness, this tragic accident, this unexpected unemployment, this disastrous relationship situation, even something as relatively trivial as a broken washing machine, this too must not be a chance mishap or an accident of fate without meaning. This must. Be part of my Father's perfect plan to conform me to the likeness of Christ. Do you see the difference that makes in your challenging situation when you see that this too is part of a loving Father's perfect plan? John Calvin says, For God does not consider in chastening the faithful what they deserve, but what will be useful to them in the future." He fulfills the office of physician rather than judge. See, if you remember that God has chosen you and irreversibly and passionately committed Himself to you, then you know also that He hears your prayers, no matter what your circumstances around you suggest. But the temptation to give up on God is not the only one that faces us in the midst of trials verse 4 introduces a second temptation, which is the temptation to be angry and rebellious against God. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. You see, if you're anything like me, anger is often our reaction when we see things going wrong in our lives and in the lives of people we love. We say Granted, You're in control of the situation, God. Why are You doing this to us? And we find ourselves in inner turmoil with powerful emotions like anger and fear and disappointment coursing through our minds. It's not fair! Why is this the way it is? And we lie awake at night, tossing and turning, murmuring angrily against God, just as the children of Israel did in the wilderness when they compared the prospect of endless manna To the very diet that they had enjoyed in Egypt. Now, an internal emotional reaction to a crisis is probably inevitable. It's better and healthier to acknowledge and deal with it than it is to stuff it down and suppress it, because after all, good Christians shouldn't feel that way. So, David doesn't say, don't be angry. He doesn't instruct you to repress your emotions. On the contrary, he says, be angry. But on the other hand, he doesn't tell you just to vent that anger. He doesn't say, shout and scream and yell, and you'll feel so much better. Now, at the end of the same verse, he began with, be angry, he says, be silent. At this point, my head's exploding, right? How can I be both angry and silent? Well, the answer lies in the intervening part of the verse, don't sin, talk to yourself. You see, David doesn't want you either to deny or to vent your emotions, he wants you to interact with and deal with your emotions. Our emotions are real. Anger is real, grief is real, disappointment is real, sorrow is real. We feel those feelings, but they are just feelings. And you deal with feelings by talking to yourself. When David says, ponder in your hearts on your bed, the Hebrew literally is, talk in your hearts, counsel yourself, remind yourself of the things you know to be true, so your emotions don't overpower you. Now, interestingly, both the beds and the hearts are plural here which suggests that David doesn't simply want you to talk to yourself, he wants you to talk to others who can help you get a handle on your emotions, who you in turn can help get a hold of their emotions. I think for many of us, we live very isolated lives. We like to think that we can work things through by ourselves, perhaps particularly those of us who are men. But the reality is we need one another in the Christian life. We need our spouses, our friends, our families, our church, and especially in times when our lives are in turmoil. We need other believers who know what is going on in our hearts in our most secret thoughts and who can counsel us wisely how to deal with those emotions in the light of all that we know to be true in the Scriptures. And those don't necessarily need to be professionally trained counselors, although there are times when such experts can be a great blessing to us. But often all we need is somebody who will listen well to our challenges and who will remind us of the straightforward truths of the gospel that we so easily forget. And in addition to self and peer counseling, David also tells us, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord verse 5. In other words, instead of being driven by your emotions to pursue false gods, go to the means of grace that God has provided to help you to pursue Him. You see, God ordained a variety of sacrifices for His Old Testament people to deal with their sin, to deal with their fear of abandonment by God. And when they brought an offering to the temple, they were vividly reminded of God's plan to repair their broken relationship with Him through the death of a substitute in their place. So, in effect, when David tells us to offer right sacrifices, he's saying, go to worship, join God's people, remind yourself of the reality of the gospel as you hear the Word preached and you take part in the sacraments administered. The Lord's Supper was given to us to help us to stand firm in trusting the Lord by remembering and receiving afresh the reality of His death for us. The Westminster Directory of Public Worship reminds us that we should celebrate the Lord's Supper often because it's designed for our comfort and our edification. It's not that the Lord's Supper has some kind of magic power within itself to make our lives go better. Rather, the Lord's Supper points our eyes away from ourselves and our present problems towards the God who has loved us so comprehensively at the cross and who has prepared a glorious inheritance for us in Christ at the end of all things. In Psalm 73, the psalmist tells us that his feet had almost slipped from following God because of the apparent unfairness of life by which his irreligious neighbors were thriving. While he was constantly suffering, he was ready about to give up on his faith. But then he went to the temple, and he understood afresh what he saw around him in the world was not an accurate measure of God's attitude towards people. Earthly prosperity does not equate to divine blessing, and earthly poverty does not mean divine disfavor. Well, in the same way, we need to come and join ourselves to God's people and worship Sunday after Sunday, especially when we're struggling with our own hearts. Perhaps it is when we least feel like coming to worship that we most need to come to worship because church is the place where our thinking about God gets corrected, where the Holy Spirit gently confronts our hearts and reminds us of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, stirring us to trust Him once again. How can we not trust a God who has loved us so much? Of course, the reality is that many of us do struggle with angry feelings towards God, and then we behave sinfully towards Him like a two-year-old throwing a tantrum in a toy store because they don't get their way. There will be times when you need to come and acknowledge and confess your angry and bitter hearts before God, to ask Him to clear your head and to cleanse your heart. And what better place to do that in church? That's why we have a confession of sin, an assurance of pardon. We look again to the cross, where Jesus offered Himself as the once-and-for-all sacrifice for you. And you ask God to cleanse your heart with that atoning blood. You ask Him to give you a new level of trust in place of that anger and bitterness and fear. You know, anger is a very revealing emotion because it demonstrates that even when we say we have given our lives over to Jesus, we don't really trust Him. We're constantly terrified that God might make a mess of our lives at any moment. You know, we claim to have given the driver's seat in our hearts over to Jesus, but we're convinced that He can't possibly steer the vehicle correctly unless He follows our directions from the back seat. The trusting attitude, on the other hand, is that of a little girl being carried into the doctor's surgery by her father for an injection. He can't explain to her why this is happening in any way that makes sense to her, because she's too young. And you can see the fear in her eyes as the needle approaches, but she doesn't try to run away. She doesn't kick and she doesn't scream. She just clings tighter to her father. so, too, when God brings tragedy into your life, whether that involves taking away a loved one, or a job, or your health. So often we kick and scream and rage inside, and what we should do is simply cling tighter to our Heavenly Father. Yes it hurts. No, we don't understand why this is happening. No, we don't see any good possibly coming from this. Yes, we have to struggle constantly with our hearts on our beds every night, but in the midst of it all, you trust. That attitude is a gift of God that silences our unruly hearts, that enables us to look again at the cross in the midst of our pain and to remember the far greater pain that God Himself paid to make us His beloved children. The cross reminds us that the God who calls us to suffer is the God who first suffered for us and has now promised to be with us in our darkest moments. And then the third temptation is found in verse 6. It's a temptation to give up hope. Many are saying to David, who will show us some good? Perhaps you've met people who've given up on God. You know, once they believed that God would answer their prayers, that He would heal their sickness, that He would restore their relationships, but after a long time of waiting and praying When nothing seemed to change, they've lost their hope. They're no longer even angry with God. They're resigned and despairing. Despair is an understandable reaction when trials are extended, but it's also a sign that your hope has been placed in the wrong place. It stems from a belief that if only God would answer my prayer, then I would be happy. When the drought ends and we have plenty of grain and new wine, then I'll be happy. If only I was married, then everything would be wonderful. If I had a better job or a better house or better health or better kids or victory over some sin, then life would be good. If your hope is pinned on seeing your problems resolved and your sufferings relieved and your petitions answered, you're going to have a hard time if God doesn't give you what you seek. The gifts of God can themselves become our idols, things that were never meant to be worshipped as if your meaning and success in life depended on receiving those things. peace and joy come when your hope is fixed more on your relationship with God than it is on God's external provisions for you. True joy comes when you can say, the time I spend with God in prayer is more precious to me than receiving answers to all my prayers. True peace comes when you recognize that one thing alone is necessary, that you may dwell in the presence of the Lord. Psalmist David says it in verse 6, just lift up the light of Your face upon us, Lord. That's all we ask. Lift up the light of Your face upon us. If we have that, if we have Your favor, Your blessing upon us, then everything else can go." Everything else is secondary, unimportant in comparison to that one great goal, that the Sovereign Lord of the universe loves me and shows me the favor of His smile. In the words of the prophet Habakkuk, even though the fig tree should not blossom, and no fruit be on the vines, and the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, uh, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. David is no armchair warrior. The actions and attitudes that He is counseling us towards in His conversation with men are the same things that we see Him doing in His conversation with God. He's talking to His own heart as well as to the hearts of others. He cried out to God and not to idols in verse 1. He confesses that God is the one who must vindicate Him, verse 1. Whatever God does is right, whether He understands it or not. And so far from being in turmoil on his bed, David lies down and instantly falls asleep because he recognizes the Lord alone makes him to dwell in safety, verse 8. He looks to God's grace and mercy as the foundation of his plea. Yet David is not a masochist who glories in suffering. He asks God to deliver him, to give him some breathing room in the midst of his distress. And it's appropriate for us to pray for the release uh, from our trials. But David asks for deliverance with full confidence of a joy and peace that transcends this world's understanding because he knows that God has already dealt with his sin. And so, as a result, the sunshine of the Lord's face must pour down from now on upon David continually as the ironic Blessing in number 6 requested. But how could David have such confidence, given the history of sin and failure that formed the backdrop of Psalm 3? How could an adulterer and a murderer find comfort in saying, know that God has set apart the godly for Himself? And even if that statement was true, how could David possibly be considered godly after all that he'd done? Well, the answer is that David is looking forward by faith to the one whom God had promised to send, David's own offspring, who would be greater than he. This coming messianic king would be the godly one through whom God would redeem His people. And in Jesus, this anticipated Messiah has come. The glorious light of the Father's countenance now shines forth in the world. John 8, 12, Jesus did not come to experience abundant grain and new wine for Himself, although He multiplied bread to feed others and transformed water into the best of wine for others to drink. In fact, during the time of His ministry, Jesus didn't even have a bed of His own on which to lie down and sleep. And far from being surrounded by followers, people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. John 3.19, and so instead of coming to Jesus and recognizing His glory, they spat on Him and they beat Him and they put Him to shame and they mocked Him on the cross. How long will this world continue to turn God's glory into shame? Jesus certainly experienced it. He knew what it is to be surrounded on all sides by many enemies to feel suffering and pain, and to wrestle with His heart in the midst of a broken world. To say, Father, if it is Your will, let this cup pass from Me, yet not My will, but Yours be done. But the place that this world counts as the place of deepest shame, the cross, is actually the place with the greatest glory of all the place where our righteous God vindicates sinners by establishing a new righteousness for all His people. By setting apart His own anointed one to experience His wrath against sin, God made it possible for us, His people, to see the light of His face. At the cross, God offered the perfect sacrifice so that we might lie down and sleep in peace, dwelling in safety that no trial or temptation or even sin can ever touch. At the cross we can come and experience relief from the greatest distress of all, which is the weight and burden of our sin. Now even former adulterers and murderers like David can come into God's holy presence, washed clean by the blood of Christ and enabled to sing His praises they too can be counted among the godly as joined to Christ by faith. And we also, broken and deeply sinful though we are, can be accepted as the children of God and feel the warm light of His radiant smile upon us for the sake of Jesus. See, this is how you keep your head when all around you are losing theirs. You need to know Christ and His sufferings in your place. You need to seek the Father's face as the source of your true joy even when nothing else is going right. You need to talk to your heart, reminding yourself of the things you know to be true. You need to surround yourself with others who can speak that same truth into your heart and tell you the things that you need to hear. And then you can cry confidently to your heavenly Father and trust that whatever the storm outside, you will dwell securely forever, cradled in your Father's arms. Though my whole world falls apart, so long as I have God, I have everything I need in life and in death. And when you join David in that attitude, you will be able to find joy and peace in the midst of unanswered prayers and unanswerable questions. At the end of the psalm, David's situation has not been resolved. The drought has not ended. The people still faced famine and death, but unlike those around him in the midst of the crisis, David can say, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Like Habakkuk, David had learned. How to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of trials because His eyes were fixed on His faithful God who would never leave Him nor forsake Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before You with many needs and concerns and worries on our hearts, uh, many prayers, some of which have been answered, many of which have not. Lord, we pray that in the midst of our our hearts in turmoil, you would enable us to rest in you because of the blood of Christ which cleanses us from all sin and which enables us to be accepted by faith as your sons and daughters who you will never leave or forsake, in whose hearts you are doing a work that you will bring to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, when our souls will be reunited with our bodies and we will be with you in glory forever. Lord, we pray that that ultimate reality would shape the way we deal with present realities. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue. Adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University, we'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.